welcome to the Holmes Politicast. My name is Jim, and I'll be your host today for this hour of the show. Um, lots to talk about. First, I want to start with my quote for this week. It's from Leonardo da Vinci, and it said, I awoke only to see that the rest of the world is still asleep. And many times that's how I feel, is I do the show. The whole world is still asleep, and there's only a few of us who are awake and seeing what's happening. Uh, we're going to start with the first story, is from News Nation Now, and it is a story about Clinton Harbor. The uh, headline is, Michigan declares emergency over lead. Uh, governor visits. Governor, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer said she visited Benton Harbor on Tuesday to listen to residents who have been urged to use bottled water because of elevated levels of lead in their tap water. Mm, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Whitmer's stop, which wasn't publicly disclosed until it was over, came hours after city commissioners unanimously declared an emergency and empowered Mayor Marcus Muhammad to lead Benton Harbor's response. We've heard the cry of the people. Anything the mayor needs from this commission, we're going to work with him tooth and nail, Commissioner Dwayne Seats said. Benton Harbor, a predominantly black, mostly low-income community of 9,700 people, is in southwestern Michigan, 100 miles from Chicago. Lead levels in water have exceeded the federal threshold. Unlike Flint, where state-appointed managers switched the water source and then didn't properly treat it, the situation in Benton Harbor is different in some ways. Benton Harbor, like many communities, gets water from Lake Michigan, but the system moves water through old lead pipes. Some experts believe a drop in water volume due to fewer customers has also contributed to contamination. Lead is considered harmful at any level, and children are particularly vulnerable because it can slow growth and result in behavioral problems. The state is providing free water to residents for cooking and drinking. We will not rest until every parent feels confident to give their kid a glass of water knowing that it is safe, Whitmer said in a written statement. The cost to replace about 6,000 lead service lines is estimated at $30 million. Nearly $19 million in state and federal money has been set aside, and Whitmer hopes the Republican-controlled legislature will agree to use more federal money to reach the goal. The mayor was asked at a news conference if he was disappointed that Whitmer hadn't acted sooner. My Bible says that money solveth all things, Muhammad said. This is a $30 million job, and the money was not there three years ago. He said nobody wins in a blame game. She can't act alone, Muhammad said. This is a democracy. I'm just happy today to stand here and say we do have the money. We are moving forward. Separately, the State Senate Oversight Committee Ask the state's environmental agency for documents related to Benton Harbor, including email and correspondence dating to 2019, when Whitmer, a Democrat, took office. State Senator Ed McBroom, the Republican committee chairman, 
cited a recent Detroit news report that said that state failed that the state failed to tell residents that their water was unsafe for more than two years while trying treatments to reduce lead levels. The Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy will explain how Benton Harbor officials and residents were informed of drinking water lead levels, spokesman Hugh McDiarmond Jr. said. Uh, I have some problems in this article already. Um, I, of course, it says Whitmer stopped, which wasn't publicly disclosed until it was over. This seems to be a habit of hers. Um, the event that I went to, the Governor Whitmer gave, it was very hush-hush. Nobody really knew about it until it was over. Um, and I've heard that she did this at another campaign rally. I think we talked about it, actually, a couple weeks ago. Uh, another rally where people were not told that she was there. And now third, this is the third time that I know of this year that she has gone somewhere and not told anybody until it was over. Um, I don't know this. I, I don't know Mr. Muhammad, what Bible he's reading. He says, my Bible says that money solveth all things. Unless he's talking about the lost gospel of Scrooge McDuck, I don't know of anywhere in the Bible that it says money solves all problems. So I'm not sure if he was being facetious, which I don't understand why he would say my Bible says. Why didn't he just say money solves all things? Um, I don't know. I don't know if he was being sarcastic. I'm not sure. But I thought it was a really dumb thing. And this is why I think that money should have been put away that we got from the federal government for the pandemic response that she keeps promising to every group, you know, to redo the national parks, to ensure voting rights and Detroit and all these, you know, repairing roads and all these other things that she claims the money is going to go to that should have been put in a rainy day fund for emergencies like this so that they can, they can handle these problems. Cause now she's talking about using that money for this. Well, then everyone else that she promised it to is going to be, it's going to lose out. So anyway, I just, this is just another disaster. We we're having, this is going to continue to be a problem and it's not any party's fault or any particular person's fault. It's just that every politician kicks the can down the road because these were made, most of our, our pipes and, and our sewer systems all over the country, but even here in Michigan, most of them, not some of the newer stuff that's been built, but most of them, like in those big cities like Detroit and Benton Harbor and Grand Rapids and things, these were built years ago when we didn't have, number one, we didn't have a lot of technol technology that we have now. And number two, when we didn't have all the knowledge, the stuff was still relatively new. And now we've had 50 or 60 or 70 years worth of testing and knowledge that we can build on and say, oh, well, lead pipes aren't good for you, or you know, we didn't have the technology to, to coat those things so that, that it wouldn't seep into the water. So it's no particular person's fault. It was just limitations of the time. But many of our cities around the country and here in Michigan use this old antiquated uh, pipe system that are getting rusty, they're falling apart, they're producing poisons in our water, but it is going to be so costly and so difficult that 
nobody wants to tackle the problem. There's always other issues that you want to, because it's so disruptive too. Like, like I've told you before about Chicago and Los Angeles, particularly one reason why uh, I saw a special on this years ago when I was in my twenties and it, it, it explained why it's so difficult because these things were laid down. Many of these things were laid down when the cities were relatively small and you had dirt roads. And so you'd put these pipes in and stuff. And it was, it was the height of sophistication and technology at that time. You had running water to, to, you know, to businesses and things like this and indoor plumbing and all kinds of stuff. But as years passed, the pipes weren't replaced, but the city built up over them. They started paving the roads and, and in some cases they built businesses over the top of where the pipes were, you know? And, uh, so now you have these major cities, sometimes skyscrapers, you have all these, you know, everything is paved, concrete, sidewalks. You've got, you know, businesses everywhere. You got tourists all over the place in the summertime. And now these pipes need to be repaired because they're getting to be, you know, 70, 80 years old and they're going bad. But you would have to shut down almost the entire, or at least blocks at a time and tear up all of the of the roads and the sidewalks. And in some cases you'd have to tear up the floors of some of the buildings to get down to those pipes, or you'd have to reroute them, but still they have to shut off businesses, close down businesses while they're, uh, while they're redoing all this, it's going to take a lot of planning. If they're not going to tear down buildings or dig into the basements of buildings, then they've got to find some way to reroute all of those pipes to go in through the roads. And that takes a lot of planning. That's not something you just do on the weekend. I mean, that's going to be a lot of planning and it's going to cost the taxpayers hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, plus lost revenue for the businesses and aggravation for people's homes and tourists and all this kind of stuff. Nobody wants to do that project because it would, it would just be so disruptive and you'd have everybody angry. Citizens would be angry. Businesses would be angry. Everyone would be complaining about it. And taxpayers will be upset. That their taxes have to be raised, you know, for all of, for all of this money and, and, and everything. So no politician really wants to do it, deal with it. I don't blame them on a human level because as long as it's not killing anybody yet, we know it will probably kill people in the future, but it's not killing anybody yet. Wait till it's actually doing damage and then we'll address it. There's no point in doing this whole process if it doesn't have to be done right now because we have other, what we consider pressing issues, whether or not they really are, is debatable. But in their mind, we have more pressing issues that we have to deal with today than have to fix all of these things that were put in 75 years ago. So they all push it down the road, but unfortunately nothing's going to change until people start dying. You know, and then everyone's like, you gotta do something, you gotta do something. And so, it, I mean, it's their fault for pushing it down the road, but it's not any single person's or party's fault. You can't say oh, this is all the Democrats or this is all the Republicans or, or whatever. I mean, both parties have kicked it down the road. Neither party wants to take on that project. And like I said, I mean, it would be years long. I mean, they could do it quickly, quicker, 
but it would be more painful, and that would be to shut down the entire city of Chicago and redo all of them. But that would just be uh, a lunatic move. I mean, that would be suicide, political suicide. So you have to do it in batches, which means it would take years to go block by block and have to shut down the entire block, get it all done, and then go to the next block and shut down that block and reopen the block you just had. That's going to take a long time, and that's going to get on people's nerves real fast. The constant work that's going on, the noise, the everything. So nobody really wants to take on that project until they absolutely have to. But this is going to be a reoccurring problem in Michigan, certainly, and, and around the country, but certainly in Michigan. This is going to become a reoccurring problem, you know, that, you know, at some point, we're going to hear this in Grand Rapids. There's lead in the water. You know, it's going to happen in downtown Detroit. You know, it's going to start happening in Sterling Heights. It's going to, you know, we're going to start seeing more cities that are uh, are suffering from this until we get the problem solved. And we haven't even fixed the Flint water crisis yet, completely. I mean, we've we've made we've made inroads, but but still, there are, there are still some severe problems in Flint. And, you know, it's real easy to run on that. Whitmer ran on, oh, she's going to do something about it. She's going to take care of it. Um, Joe Biden promised he would do something about it. He would take care of it. And, well, I mean, and, and, and in all fairness, Rick Snyder promised he would take care of it after it happened. But it is such a huge undertaking that nobody really wants to tackle it. And Whitmer certainly doesn't want to tackle it right now before the election because she'll get voted out if she's shutting down. She already went, already went through a total lockdown last year, and the economy hasn't recovered yet. The last thing she wants to do is start shutting down more businesses so that they can redo all of the, uh, of the, um, of the uh, pipes and things. Sorry, I got distracted for a second. Um, you know, so she certainly doesn't want to do that now as we head into an election year, raising taxes and and talking doom and gloom. So it's no wonder that she snuck into town in the dead of night and then snuck out as quickly as she came in because, you know, she doesn't want to draw attention to this, but we're going to. Attention needs to be drawn to the fact that Benton Harbor is uh, the water will kill you right now. And, you know, so... I mean, this is one of those things that if you're in Benton Harbor visiting, I mean, on business or something, I mean, it's not like a tourist area, but if you're visiting Benton Harbor, do not drink the water there. Do not drink it because it will, it will do serious damage to you. You know, people need to know that. And then, I mean, I assume all the citizens know, but, but anyway, it just, this is, this is becoming a problem and. You know, this is not good for the woman who claimed that she was going to fix all of Michigan's problems. And she really hasn't fixed anything yet. She hasn't fixed the road. She hasn't fixed Flint. Um, all she did was do these uh, uh, lockdowns, which didn't um, stop the spread. The spread still came. Some might argue it slowed it down. I don't know if that's true. There's not really any way to prove it's true. Because Michigan was hit pretty hard with the coronavirus, in spite of the fact that she locked everything down. So her tenure is remembered for the lockdowns. 
that's what she's remembered for at this point. And that's probably what she'll always be remembered for, regardless if she gets reelected or not. She'll always be remembered as the governor who, who locked us all down. So I, I don't know what she is planning to do before she gets reelected to show that she actually was a good governor. I'm not sure because it sure seems like everything is falling apart when it, when it comes to uh, our state. It just seems pretty bad. Oh, goodness. Um, let's see. The next story is a nationwide story. It is about um, the uh, what is it? bottleneck in California for things coming from China, I believe. Um, but anyway, this is from pain.tv. Uh, and it's headline reads empty Christmas stockings. Don't blame COVID blame California. The article reads like this. The conventional wisdom from the left is that COVID is the reason that shipping containers in the waters off California with no stevedores or truckers available to take care of them. The implication, of course, is that if people would stop being selfish and take the vaccines, the whole problem would magically vanish. That's nonsense. As a couple of astute articles explain, the problem is that California has passed two laws, one for climate change and the other is a sop to the unions that destroyed much of California's trucking industry. Add in woes unique to the industry and COVID payments that discourage people from working and voila, empty Christmas stockings. Stephen Green at PJ Media explains some of what's going on. As a preliminary matter, truckers are aging out of, a jo out of the job and new ones aren't coming along. Because federal law requires that truckers be at least 21, kids who, uh, oh, hold on a second, I lost the, uh, oh wait, where, oh, where am I? Sorry, I lost the page. Oh, here it goes. Came back up. Uh, kids who leave school at 17 or 18 get involved in other careers, leaving truckers, trucker shortfalls. Women don't offset this problem because it's a typical for physically difficult jobs, I think. Those are long-term problems. The short-term problem, though, is that California has passed laws taking tr truckers whew, off the road. Uh, Twitter user Jerry Ober reminds us that, quote, carriers domiciled in California with trucks older than 2011 model or using engines manufactured before 2010 will need to meet the board's new truck and bus regulations beginning in 2020. Otherwise, quote, their vehicles will be blocked from registration with the state's DMV, according to California law. The requirement is to purchase electric trucks, which do not exist yet. Sundance at Conservative Treehouse expands on this, explaining that the EPA reached an agreement with the California Air Resource Board to shut down semi-truck tractor rigs that are non-compliant with new California emission standards. In effect, what, what this 2020 determination and settlement created was an inability of half the nation's truckers from picking up anything from the port of LA or port of Long Beach. Virtually all private owner operator trucks and half of the fleet trucks that are used for moving containers across the nation 
were shut out. In an effort to offset the problem, transportation companies started using compliant trucks with low emissions to take the bikes to the California state line where they could be transferred to non-compliant trucks who cannot enter California. However, the scale of the problem creates an immediate bottleneck that builds over time. It doesn't matter if the port starts working 24-7. They are only going to end up with even more containers waiting on limited available, a limited amount of available trucks. That's problem number one. Problem number two, again, according to Green, is California's infamous AB5, the law that, as a sop to the Democrats' beloved unions, killed the gig economy. Traditionally, the ports have been served by owner-operators, Oakley says, who are non-union. But under AB5, California has now banned owner-operators. Just like the union longshoresmen, union truckers work under a whole host of work rules that simply can't accommodate crisis conditions like the ones in Los Angeles. All of this means that Biden's grandstanding about having the ports operate 24-7 won't make a difference. The Greenies and the unions killed the infrastructure to unload those ships with COVID restrictions, trucking restrictions, and free money landing the coup de gray, grace, coup de grace, whatever, um, that led to the situation. Biden does have the emergency power to order those California laws in abeyance, but you know he's not going to do so. But of course, the more serious underlying problem is that in the distance, or in a distant wonderful past, America didn't need to rely on containers from Asia to fill her store shelves and Christmas stockings. America was a manufacturing dynamo that fulfilled America's needs and still had enough left over for the rest of the world. Those, thing, those things were well made too. Thanks to our devil's bargain with communist China, we have no manufacturing sector and we are utterly dependent on China, both for things we like and things we need. Biden's inflammatory politics and crackdown on fossil fuels means that he will be virtually impossible for a renaissance in American manufacturing. Trump tried to stop the situation, but China owns so much of America's political and industrial class that the pushback shackled his presidency and pushed him straight out of the White House. So that explains a little bit of what was happening in California right now. Um, the situation is dire. Uh, because obviously trucks can't get in there. They can't enter California unless they pass some regulations. And it's just a mess. It's just an absolute mess. And it just shows what a disaster Biden has been. He's not even been in office for a full year yet. And already he's creating disasters everywhere. Um... Another story that I think should be helped brought to our attention um, is uh, from Morning in America. I think this is from News Nation, but I'm not 100% sure where this channel comes from. Uh, I, I kind of think this might be their version of Good Morning America or something. Cause, but it says American held hostage missionaries, missionary on life in Haiti. All right. Um, a Haitian gang that kidnapped a group of American and Canadian missionaries is asking for $17 million or $1 million each to release them according to a top Haitian official. Among the 16 Americans and one Canadian are five children, 
including an eight-month-old baby, according to the Ohio-based Christian Aid Ministries. They were abducted in an area called Croix de Bouquet, about eight miles outside the capital, which is dominated by the 400 Mawazo gang. Five children who, whose ages range from eight months to 15 years, seven women and five men were taken. They were abducted on October 16. The organization said they were on a trip to visit an orphanage. Sheriff Todd Baxter of the Monroe County Sheriff's Office in Rochester, New York, has done missionary work in Haiti. He joined Adrienne on Morning in America to discuss his experiences during his trips to the country over the past decade. The increased threat has been occurring over probably the last four or five years. The instability of the government there, we were there five years ago. There was no sitting president, and of course, we had an assassination and an earthquake in the most recent times. So instability is leading to this new chaos. Someone needs to fill that gap, and you see the gangs filling that gap where there's no law and government. Baxter said he recently spoke to some residents in Haiti, and they said they're living in constant state of fear. They're fatigued. They're actually fatigued from the fear of going outside. A young lady we've mentored, she's tired. She's tired of not being able to go outside, not go to work. She's been robbed on the way to work. So it's just that overall fatigue. They're looking for some stability. They're looking for some hope, Baxter explained. He said he would not advise anyone to travel to Haiti right now unless they have a security plan in place. I would go there to help. That's the nature of my job description. I feel the need to help, and I have some special skills that may be able to help with that, Baxter said. But I would not advise most people to go over unless they have a security plan and additional resources that they can make in Haiti to make that security happen. And this is just tragic. Um, you know, I've been on mission trips in the past, and, you know, there's always an element of fear uh, because you're in a foreign country and you don't know the rules. I mean, it's different if you go to somewhere like England or Canada. Um, but in my case, I went to Ukraine, and Ukraine, and Ukraine had a very corrupt government and corrupt police force. And so there was fear, a certain amount of fear that I had going in there. And they have a very, um, uh, I don't know what the word would be. Um, they had very uh, anti-religious laws, like we couldn't bring in any any anything religious, like we couldn't bring our Bibles, you know, and um, stuff like that. So, I mean, there was some fear. I mean, they didn't shut down churches. You could have a church, I guess, but but it had to be all homegrown. They didn't they didn't want foreigners coming into their country and creating upheaval. They said, you know, they didn't want you coming into the country and and getting all these people hyped for Jesus, and then you leave the country, and now we're stuck with all these people who want to, you know, in their mind overthrow the government or, you know, induce, you know, Jesus Christian policies or something. I don't know. So anyway, so it, I mean, it was a, it was a real struggle because we did smuggle our Bibles in, and there was the fear of customs, and any time we were in there that. If a police officer searched us or saw that we had brought in a Bible, it would be contraband and we could be arrested. And I don't know what the American embassy would have done. I don't know if they would have fought to get us released. But I don't know if they would say, well, you broke the law of that country or what. 
But anyway, I, I don't know all the details. I'm just saying that there's always an element of fear when you're a missionary or when you're on a missions trip that and you're in a foreign country because the rules are so different there and they don't have a constitution. They don't have uh, – the people don't have the rights in other countries that they do in the United States. And so you know, if you're thrown in jail, it's just common knowledge here that you get at least one phone call. You get – you know, you can't be beat. You can't be locked away. You have to, you know, you have to have access to a lawyer or to, you know, any of these things. And these other countries don't have those rules. In some countries, like in Mexico, they don't have the, um, you are innocent until proven guilty. If the police arrest you, you are automatically assumed to be guilty. And then you have to prove that you're innocent, which is a very hard thing to do. And a lot of Americans don't understand that. They think it's just, they take for granted that that's just the rights around the world, that of course you're innocent until proven guilty. And in many of these countries, you're not. Now, of course, in Haiti here, that wasn't the case. It wasn't the police. I'm just using that as an example of how it's always a little scary going into another nation because you don't know what could happen. And in this particular case, because the country is in absolute freefall, you know, they haven't recovered from that hurricane that went through there years ago. And then they had a major earthquake this year, and the president of the country was assassinated. The whole country is in turmoil, and there's no real police force. There's no real government right now. Everything's in disarray. And so, uh, you know, as, as Christians, we have, heart, we have a heart for other countries. We have a heart for Haiti. I heard about Haiti, and I, it wasn't something I seriously considered, but... It crossed my mind that you know it might be good to do a mission trip to Haiti and help rebuild some of that country and things like this. So there's always an element of danger. And so these – I really feel for these people who have been abducted and they're being held hostage. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Biden has not commented yet, and I don't know if he will. But um, I don't know what's going to happen to them. But – so I, uh, you know, I would encourage everybody if you're if you're religious, to be praying for these people, and so that they come home safe, and that uh, and secure, and and hopefully, I, I'm hoping that the United States would step in and do something here. I, I I I know Biden has a lot on his plate, but it seems like he could interfere in this. You could go to the UN if nothing else, and they could work out a plan for Haiti. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I'm just off the top of my head. I really don't know. Obviously, what's being done or anything like that, but I'm, I know there's some kind of a way because we've done it before. We've gotten hostages out, but the Biden administration reminds me a lot of the Carter administration, and we saw that the hostages were kept there over a year in Iran. So because Carter really didn't have any plan to rescue them. And I mean, I mean, he had some ideas, but let me just say Carter, one of the problems is he became too personally engrossed in it. He worried that any, any move the United States made would get the hostages killed. And so he was paralyzed with fear to do anything out of 
out of fear that if he did anything, they would start killing hostages. So he didn't know what to do. And he tried several other things, but always, but always the smallest amount. He didn't want to do anything to upset the Iranians. And I fear, especially since there are kids being held hostage here, that Biden is going to tiptoe. Like, we don't want that blood on our hands. We don't want to be responsible for children being executed because we didn't take them seriously. And I would imagine that, that, that that's going to be their responses. And I think that's probably why he hasn't responded to it. Because, you know, he doesn't want to acknowledge it yet. Because as soon as he acknowledges it, then everyone's going to be wanting to know what's going to be done. And I, I don't think he knows what to do yet. And he doesn't want that image of the body bags of children coming back and everyone saying, this is your fault, Biden. You did this because you didn't pay the ransom or you went in there like a cowboy and decided you were going to sit in the military and take them all out and they killed all these hostages, you know, or whatever. I, I think that, and that's exactly what these people know. They kidnapped this group knowing that it's going to be it's going to be hard for a president to order the military to go in and rescue them because they know if these gangsters get wind that the military is coming in they'll kill all the hostages. So yeah, you can come in and get us but your people are going to be dead so what so it's pointless to even come in here. So this is why in most times in hostage negotiations, they don't have the victim's family, the people being held hostage, running the negotiations. They usually get or they always get a third party who has no relationship because it's much easier for them to think clearly about what is best for the whole situation and not, I want to save my child or I want to save my wife or I want to, you know, um, you know, they, they, they can be impartial and say, look, we can't. I have to assume that a certain percentage of these people aren't going to come out alive. So I'm going to have to do my best to make sure the majority of them do and not be concerned about individual people, but thinking it's the whole group. And that sounds callous, but that's what you have to do. You have to think what's best for the whole group, not what's best for each individual, because there's a good chance that at least one of them will be executed by these people to show, to make the point that they mean business. And that's what, but, Jimmy Carter, and I suspect Biden is this way too, became too emotionally attached. Carter studied every one of these people. He talked to their families. He learned about their lives. He became so engrossed that he couldn't, he couldn't imagine losing any of them. He couldn't imagine calling up the parents of any of them and saying, I lost your kid because of what I did. Your kid died. You know, he would have been better off to have not known any of their names, not known anything about them, not contacted any of their families. And just said, let's look at this completely logically without any emotion. What can we do to get these hostages out or as many of them as possible? And that's what Biden needs to do. But I just knowing Biden, how he's always crying and he's real empathetic. I imagine that he's going to take this personally. And it's like, I don't want to do anything. I, I, you know, I'm, I, I sympathize with these people. I imagine what it's like. If that was my kid. Or if I was one of the people in there, what would I want? You know, so I, I don't have any uh, great um, 
what do you call it, confidence that this is going to end well. Um, and I don't know how long it'll take. It might be, they might be there a year or more. For all we know. Um, so, uh, let's see, was there another? Oh, here's there's a, a list here of twelve potential GOP candidates. We'll probably close out with this because we're we're starting to get near the end of time. But here are the twelve right now that are considering running for president. Now, some of these won't run if Donald Trump runs. So I'm just going to say Donald Trump offhand off from the start. And then the other 11, some of these won't run if Donald Trump runs, but these are potential candidates who have expressed interest in running in 2024. And I wonder what your um, opinion is. We have the U.S. Senator Ted Cruz from Texas. He is the one who is considering running for president of the United States. U.S. Representative Matt Gates of Florida, um, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, former Vice President Mike Pence of Indiana, Mayor of Miami Francis X. Suarez from Florida. I've never heard of that guy. Former Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia, Former Ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley from South Carolina. U.S. Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. And businessman Donald Trump Jr. from New York. This is quite a gallery of individuals. They did not include on here um, Governor Christy Noem of South Dakota. She is considering running but she won't run if Trump runs. So, um, This Francis X. Suarez, the mayor of Miami, never heard of him. I don't think he would go anywhere. I have no idea. <clears throat> um, I, I have no idea what makes him want to run. There's a lot of people from Florida. Um, Matt Gates would be a disaster. Marjorie Taylor Greene would be a disaster. I think Ron DeSantis would do pretty well. Um... Uh, Again, we're not talking about Donald Trump here. Um, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, would appeal to moderates and the establishment. Mike Pence, I don't think, is going to go anywhere because establishment people hate him because – or the never-Trumpers hate him because he stood by Trump for four years. And the Trumpers hate him because he didn't uh, – because he certified the election and didn't throw it back to the states. So they consider him a traitor. I don't think Mike Pence is going to go very far. Chris Christie's not going anywhere. Um, the only thing he's going to be running for is the ice cream truck. He's he's nothing. Um, Nikki Haley might go, might be okay. And Marco Rubio. I don't know. I always like Marco Rubio. I don't know if if he would do well, but he he had a really good message the last time, but he was just steamrolled by Donald Trump. Ted Cruz. I don't know. I don't particularly like Ted Cruz, but he might. He might do better this time. The problem Ted Cruz is, has is that he's just seen as such a sycophant. Um, you know, Donald Trump insulted his wife, accused his father of, of murdering JFK, called him Lion Ted. I mean, you know, and then Ted Cruz then 
joined ranks with Carly Fioroni to try to stop Trump from getting the nomination and then promised to endorse him at the convention and at the convention told them not to vote for Donald Trump and to vote their conscience. And then when Donald Trump got elected, he suddenly became Trump's best friend, always appearing at events at Trump with Trump and defending Trump all the time. You know, I, I don't think anyone can really take him that seriously because he kept flip-flopping. One minute he liked Trump, then he then he would unendorse Trump. You know, he'd say, oh, I don't support Donald Trump anymore when Trump did something that he didn't that the public didn't like and then and then he was in Trump's good graces again and just constantly going back and forth. And so Donald Trump insulted him and he coddled up to Donald Trump. I mean, what kind of a person does that? Guy bullies you and you just you know, and then you decide to become his best friend when it's convenient for you. But then when Trump said something that the public didn't like, then you're like, oh, no, no, I don't know that guy. He's not my friend. And then you need to get a bill passed and suddenly, Donald, my old friend, let's be friends again. You know, I don't know if people will consider him to be a real leader, but maybe. I mean, I mean, it's possible. It depends on who runs the campaign. But but anyway, it's a very interesting group. I have no idea about this mayor of Miami. I have no idea what he's thinking. But there's a lot of people from Florida. Matt Gates, this Miami mayor. Donald Trump, if he runs, he's going to be running from Florida. Ron DeSantis, the current governor of Florida. Marco Rubio, senator from Florida. Um, I think of all those people, if it's not Don Jr., I think Ron DeSantis has a very good chance because he was uh, he's governor of Florida and he is um, – stood firm against COVID, uh, COVID restrictions, and numbers are dwindling, and he never enforced any of the crazy lockdowns. Christy Noam, maybe. She did the same thing in South Dakota, but she's not on this list. So, But uh, anyway, it's a rather interesting list. And I'm really, I'm really, I can't wait for the next election. I'm really excited, so. Anyway, I'll talk to you all next week. So everyone have a great week and bye y'all.